It's August 27th, 2014, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. First, we'll cover some local science and tech stories. Then Don Kosak will tell us about tomorrow's Hawaii Island Game Developer Meetup. Next, Brian Sebez is here in the studio to tell us about an upcoming art exhibit. Finally, two scientists from the Bishop Museum will help us explore the Twilight Zone. Richard Pyle and Sonia Rowley will give us an update on their deep-sea coral research and the technology that makes it possible. Have your thoughts and questions ready to call in or tweet, but first the headlines. Hawaiian Electric beat the 120-day deadline by mere hours yesterday when it submitted revised plans to address a number of concerns raised by the Public Utilities Commission, including the backlog of residential solar energy installations. Um, Hiko said the plans will help to uh, help it achieve 65% of renewable energy, a 20% reduction in electric bills, and triple the amount of distributed solar by the year 2030. The PUC ordered um, Hiko to submit major improvement action plans in April. Among the hundreds of pages delivered were power supply improvement plans for Oahu, Maui, and Hawaii Island, and a distributed generation interconnection plan. Hiko says that achieving this transformation will require significant upfront investment to build the needed infrastructure. Integration of more solar was a key concern, and the utility says that it will have a clear, open planning process that will show how much more solar can be added each year. The company says it will also focus on fairness for customers, including in pricing between full grid and power generating customers. The plans also cover developing smart grids, greater use of energy storage systems, and switching from high-priced oil to lower-cost liquefied natural gas. And new products and services will include community solar and microgrids. Hiko notes that Hawaii already has one of the most diverse renewable energy portfolios in the country, with 18% of electricity used by customers coming from renewable sources. That's ahead of the 15% target set for next year. And, you know, coincidentally, I ran into uh, Peter Rossig downtown the other day, and uh, I was asking uh, Peter, so, you know, what's up with uh, the uh, Hawaiian Electric and anything going on? And he said, yeah, you know, we just submitted this uh, this <laughs> extensive action plan. And I said, oh, that's that's great. So what's the, you know, what... But what's happening after this action plan? Well, it gets reviewed, right? And this is just their recommendation on what needs to proceed. And I guess the PUC needs to determine uh, how much of it is feasible and how much can be, let's say, turned over or paid for by the ratepayers. Right, and this is actually the second go at least, I think. And this is because the initially submitted plan um, was not approved by the PUC. Mm -hmm, They were asking mm -hmm. for specific details. But there's a lot of stuff in there, of course. They're talking about uh, voluntary demand response programs. We've talked about that a bit. Like if you participate in the program, you'll get a discount on your rate because what happens is if there's suddenly high demand that you agree to, for example, let your your HVAC, your air conditioning system be turned off to preserve the stability of the grid and things like that, um, smart grids, they're saying they want to have that done on Maui by 2017 and uh, the Big Island, and by 2018 have that done for Oahu. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, with all the renewables that are being being uh, built out, especially, let's say, solar, uh, it's all about, you know, how much does the system that, that HECO manages, how much power is coming back into the system? And there's always this, you know, this really kind of a small amount compared to the, uh, you know, the petroleum burning right. that they have to do. Right. 
The red planet of Mars is the next frontier for NASA's space exploration program, and plans are coming together for the proposed Mars 2020 rover mission. Last week, NASA announced seven science instruments that will be included on the rover. The gear was selected from nearly 60 proposals that were submitted by researchers across the globe. Three scientists from the University of Hawaii's School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology, or SOAST, will be part of the rover's instrument teams. Links between the University of Hawaii and Mars go back to the 1970s when researchers at the Hawaii Institute for, of Geophysics and Planetology made observations of the red planet from atop Mauna Kea. UH researchers also have also participated in the Mars Global Surveyor and the Mars Odyssey mission. While the ongoing high seas mission prepares for manned Mars missions via the analog studies on Hawaii Island, the Mars 2020 rover will reach the planet first. Among the instruments aboard will be the MASCAM-Z, which will take panoramic and 3D images. Institute researchers um, Sarah Fagens will serve as the MASCAM-Z's team's volcanologist. Her colleagues Shiv Sharma and Anupam Misra, meanwhile, will work with the SuperCam. The SuperCam will provide imaging as well as mineralogy and chemical composition analysis. The team will look for organic compounds in rocks and sediments as well as use spectroscopy to detect biomarkers at a distance. The Mars 2020 rover mission will help explore how future human explorers could use natural resources that are available on the surface of the red planet, for example, deriving oxygen from carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. It will also focus on identifying and mitigating hazards that are posed by the Martian environment. You know, this is pretty prestigious for uh, UH researchers uh, to actually have their um, uh, sort of experiments be placed on the upcoming rover. And, uh, you know, I think uh, it's pretty neat that Hawaii is definitely being being touted as uh, heavily involved with Mars uh, exploration. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I like that they kind of took a look at the long history of Mars exploration. We've talked a lot about the high seas mission. So uh, Hawaii is in many ways playing a big part. And it's great that NASA has, in fact, just as recently as last month mm-hmm. at, an, at a meeting, basically reaffirmed that, yes, the next big target, you know, after the moon, several decades ago, they're saying for sure Mars is where we want to go next. Yeah, I'd love to have some of the folks uh, that are doing the experiments on Kauai with the, uh, the big uh, uh, decelerator. Yep, yeah. Uh, that's another we interesting project. We should talk about project. that as well. Well, moving on to the local tech calendar, a reminder for uh, Hawaii creative content developers, uh, submissions for the 2014 Creative Lab are due this Friday, August 20, uh, 29th. That's this Friday, August 29th. And this is for applicants who want to participate in the Immersive Creative Lab Writers Accelerator and the Creative Lab Broadband Accelerator programs, which will run during the Hawaii International Film Festival in November. And for more information, you can go to creative.hawaii.gov. And next week, Friday, Inter-Island Terminal will host a screening of The Internet's Own Boy. This is a documentary about the life and death of Aaron Swartz, an architect of the modern web and an internet activist who fought for open access. The screening will be at 6 p.m. That's Friday, September 5th. The following day, there'll be a discussion and workshop inspired by the film. Both events are taking place at Kakaako Agora, and for more information, you can go to interislandterminal.org. That is a must-attend event. Well, we're helping to organize it, so yes. yes. Now, joining us is Don Kozak from the Hawaii Tech Exchange, and he's here, uh, actually, calling in to tell us about the Hawaii Island Game Developer Meetup. Welcome to the show, Don. Hi, great to be on the show again. Yeah, well, it's great to hear from uh, you on the Big Island and all these things that are going on, and you're probably at the heart of a lot of the uh, sort of organizing. And tell us a little bit about this uh, sort of game developer meetup. I mean, are there a lot of 
game developers uh, popping up on the Big Island? Yeah, we actually have uh, 18 regular members now for the uh, game developer meetup. Uh, and uh, uh, we uh, are open to guests, people who want to stop by and, and see what's going on. Uh, our next meeting is tomorrow night uh, at 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock uh, at the Exchange in Hilo. Now, when you talk about games, uh, we've we've talked about a lot of game developers here in Honolulu as well, but there's a wide variety. You have uh, mobile apps, you have console games like the Xbox or PlayStation. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what is there a specific platform you're looking at, or is it even just as broad? We, we're, uh, we're exactly as broad. In fact, we have some people that are developing uh, board games as well, uh, which are still a thing. <laughs> well, you know, in the age of cell phones. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, board games is probably where you want to flesh out the idea for you know your game and game concepts. And uh, even the ones that uh, get together here are really emphasizing some of the sort of the you know the analog versions, trying to come up with some interesting board games. So, in terms of uh, this meetup, how long have you guys been doing this? So we uh, we started informally in April, and then and then more formally organized it in May. And we've been getting together on a monthly basis with everybody, and then uh, individually we've been getting together uh, for lunches and chatting about different games uh, since then. So is the uh, is the objective to just get together and, and meet, or do you have any plans to perhaps? have a, uh, let's say, a weekend event or something that uh, gets people to really barrel down on, on you know, getting a game developed? Yeah. So our, our standard meeting has three parts to it. Uh, we talk about the business of games first, so we, we'll uh, talk about funding your game, marketing, uh, really making a career out of this. Uh, we talk about development tools, and the third part is a, basically an open forum where people get to share their game ideas. And we are working on some events like game jams, where uh, ah, yes. where we'll have a period of time uh, for people to develop games around a certain theme. Mm-hmm. So the one that um, that happens on Oahu, I guess it's the the Global Game Jam. It kind of happens um, annually. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you participating from the Big Island, or how does that how does that tie you guys in? We we were uh, we are tied into that right now, uh, but it's something that we're uh, we're interested in, mm-hmm. and I'm sure there's going to be some folks participating from the Big Island. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I know the uh, the Tech Exchange is a relatively new space there. Can you, uh, again, give us the details of where and when this uh, next meetup will be? Sure. Uh, you can uh, read all about the calendar of events, and we have about four or five events every week uh, at hitx.co, uh, and uh, you can look at the calendar of events there. Uh, this game developer meetup is tomorrow uh, from 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock, at the exchange, which is uh, uh, right up uh, Hiley Street from the Bayfront. It's right across from the Lyman Museum in Hilo. Ah, excellent. Well, I definitely look forward to being able to visit there myself pretty soon. Um, Thanks very much, uh, Don, for telling us about this event. Okay, thank you. Good luck. Bye. And, of course, thanks, Don, for joining us. And, of course, now Brian uh, Sibes from the State University in New York is here to tell us about an upcoming art show at the University of Hawaii. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you already you actually flew in. You're, you're just pretty much getting off the plane. Just and, off and the plane, yeah. Straight to the studio. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I'm glad that, that we have you here, and um, it was this 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 exhibit was brought to our attention because, although we're a science and tech show, certainly the intersection with the liberal arts and culture is is very attractive to us. And there's an exhibit coming up at the university called Recharting. Um, well, briefly, how did that come to be, and how are you from New York 
here working on an exhibit at the University of Hawaii. Well, uh, I was fortunate enough to be invited to be a resident artist this past summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the month of June, mostly, I was here in residence uh, working with a faculty member at UH, Sean Spangler, uh, who is a ceramic artist, and I'm a ceramic artist. Sort of uh, my uh, my home base is working in clay, um, but I have an interest in technology, uh, and we've been collaborating for a number of years. And this was an opportunity for us to continue to investigate the intersection between the use of new tools and the use of old tools. And mm-hmm. ceramics is such an old technology; it's so direct. You know, working with your hands directly with a material is about as old as you can get. Mm-hmm. Um, and ceramicists tend to be Luddites in that uh, – or sort of like the Amish. You know, they, we, we sort of stop time and something even like an electric potter's wheel is revolutionary to us. Um, but you know, uh, I, I, I would tend to agree with yeah. you and I won't say why, but <laughs> you're absolutely <laughs> right. So, uh, so we're, Sean and I are just really interested in, in pushing boundaries and understanding the way technology is something that speaks to traditions over time, mm-hmm. not just to our present moment. Now, so I'm curious, uh, you had mentioned some of the, let's say, old technology. You know, there's a lot of tools that are involved with, uh, with mm-hmm. ceramics, and they're, they're, you know, they're pretty much, they look like utensils. Mm-hmm. But what are some of the new technologies that you might be incorporating into your art development? Well, one of our primary goals was to use uh, 3D printing mm-hmm. and digital processes uh, as, uh, as, as a way of, uh, you know, sort of bringing us up to a present moment. And um, I built over the the spring. I built a ceramic three D printer through a number of resources in uh, the DIY and open source community mm-hmm. uh, using um, a tabletop rep wrap open source machine that was adapted. Actually, a Mendel Max two um, from the Makers Toolworks guys. Mm-hmm. And uh, through the work that a uh, guy in the UK named Jonathan Keep and a Belgian artist named, named Dries Verbruggen, whose design group is called Unfold, um, there's this community that's developed a extrusion-based ceramic 3D printing. And so I was adapting this technology. And one of, one of, the, one of the, the stumbling blocks of 3D printing and ceramics is that 3D printers normally use plastic. Right. right. I was going to say, yeah, it's usually plastic as, a, as the base for whatever 3D uh, model they're creating. And in your case, you're using ceramics? Yes, using clay. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I like plastic, but in terms of its usefulness in ceramic processes, it's not so good. Um, so part, part of this open source uh, extrusion-based 3D printing process, uh, it allows us to use the same clay that my colleague and friend Sean Spangler uses for throwing on the potter's mm-hmm. wheel or hand-building mm-hmm. directly with, uh, mm-hmm. with hands and tools. So we were able to 3D print objects and hand throw and hand mold objects and then physically combine them into these uh, uh, structures that are that are unlike structures that we, you'd normally see ceramic art becoming. And um, the, the objects are vessel referencing forms. So they're, they're mostly vessels. They're pots. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have, a, they have a sort of presence and an aesthetic that's, that's new. Hmm. So, so one of the things that I'm, I'm kind of curious about is, you know, from a hand building standpoint, right, you're actually trying to mold that clay so that there's no air pockets or no, you know, it's a very dense piece of, of uh, clay that you're mm-hmm. trying to work with. And, yeah. you know, it's going to go through the firing process and you don't want it to explode. But in the in the um, 3D printing process, I would, I would kind of guess that the clay that you're shooting out of the, you know, the, uh, the, the 3D printer is going to be much less dense uh, than something that perhaps is hand-built. So are you able to somehow eliminate the air, possible air gaps that are in the clay in the 3D printing process? Well, so, some of that comes in the preparation of the clay. 
um, it's a really humble experience trying to prepare the clay to go into the to the the canister mm-hmm. that is the extruder that attaches to this really high tech tabletop device <laughs> uh, that runs on computers. So I'm I'm literally taking a spatula and folding folding the clay over itself and adding water, getting it to just the right consistency. Um, so I do spend a lot of time preparing the clay to to mitigate that. It's mm-hmm. a, it is a real problem. There's it's mostly water though. There's more water, so the the objects that are 3D printed take a little longer to dry, mm-hmm. but but water is something that's relatively easy to deal with. So. And this, would, this uh, machine that you built is going mm-hmm. to be part of the exhibit as well. So it, it is installed in the exhibition, and there will be uh, demonstrations uh, and discussions about the use of these tools uh, kind of hands-on with me and Sean. Um, the, the first event is this Sunday from 2 to 3 p.m. at the, the uh, University Art Gallery at mm-hmm. UH. Uh, we're going to do a, an hour-long gallery talk and discussion, including some hands-on stuff. I would, I would sort of guess that the, um, let's say, the clay that you're using the 3D uh, printer with is, uh, you're, you're, the output would probably be a lot more delicate than than what you might perhaps build with your hands. It it, it can be, uh, and again, we did our best to to minimize those kinds of problems that come as a result of. Uh, the, you know the the introduction of a new kind of tool mm-hmm. and um and we were actually pretty surprised by the results uh the the work is a lot stronger in its fired state than we thought now we are actually using a porcelain clay so we're using the a kind of clay that gets the most dense the most glass like when mm-hmm. it gets fired mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so that's helpful but um but yeah uh, a lot less fragile than than we thought oh, okay and yeah. then, you know i'm just looking at the website uh, some of the example pieces they do kind of look like a combination of handmade uh, ceramics and a fractal-like thing mm-hmm. that my sons yeah. would build in Minecraft. I think uh-huh. it's it's kind of cool. Is there a specific theme to recharting as an exhibit, or is it pretty much just sort of showing the wide range of possibilities with these tools? Well, it's um, it's sort of both. Um, our point of departure were or points of departure were three objects, uh, historical pots that we selected from the John Young collection mm-hmm. at UH, and we use those as um, as sort of islands out at sea. And um, the, the title of the show is, is about defining space between these places, which are, which are historic points. And, and pottery has such a long tradition that, that charts the continuum of human history. Um, and so uh, it's, it's a really kind of broad concept. And those anchors are, uh, are kind of far off in the distance. So the results don't look exactly like those historic mm-hmm. objects. Um, but they are our grounding point. So, so tell us again where, 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 when, and uh, uh, how much does it cost to get in? <laughs> well, uh, it's it's free and open to the public as far as Great. I know. Yeah. Um, maybe having said that, it's now free and open to the public <laughs> if it wasn't before. But uh, but from 2 to 3 p.m. Mm-hmm. at uh, UH campus uh, in the art building, the University Art Gallery is where the show is installed. And um, – like Ryan said, the the machines are actually are the, the the primary three D printer, and then we also have a CNC machine there. Uh, they're installed there, and we'll be doing um, a hands on uh, discussion, demo, and uh, and gallery talk with All the work. Right. And yes. the exhibit, of course, itself is there for some time. It runs uh, from the twenty fifth through the nineteenth of September. And if you want more information, you can look up the UH uh, Art uh, Gallery on the uh, on the web at hawaii.edu/art. Yeah, no, that's great. And thanks, Brian, for joining us. Hey, thank you. It was a pleasure. And yeah. look forward to seeing you on Sunday. This uh, this could be uh, you know an hour long maker fair type of conversation. We but anyway, we'll too. save that for later. <laughs> and that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Richard Pyle and Sonia Rowley from the Bishop Museum to tell us about their research in 
the Twilight Zone. Yes, what is so special about this zone? It's 200 to 900 feet deep in the ocean. Of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts or questions as part of the conversation. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live in the studio monitoring Twitter, so you can tweet us at BiteMarks or at Hawaii. This is BiteMarks Cafe. Journalism is a dangerous business, and we continue to find out just how dangerous. I'm Beth Ann Koslovich, and next on The Conversation, we'll talk with Khaldun Abu Khattab, the international news editor of a Ramallah-based newspaper. He's participating in the Senior Journalist Seminar at the East-West Center, and we'll talk tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. If you enjoyed Aloha Shorts, the program of local literature, actors, and musicians, then you won't want to miss the live taping of From Me to You, which closes the Atherton summer season on September 13th. Created by the Aloha Shorts producing team, hosted and with music by John Osorio. That's From Me to You in the Atherton, Saturday, September 13th at 7.30. Tickets at hprtickets.org or call 955-8821 during business hours. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Richard Pyle and Sonia Rowley. Richard is uh, an associate zoologist and a database coordinator at the Department of Natural Sciences over at the Bishop Museum. Sonia, meanwhile, is a research affiliate at Bishop Museum and the University of Hawaii's biology department. And what technology enables diving to the depths of 200 feet and beyond? We'd love to hear your questions and comments. And, of course, uh, you can call here at 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Richard and Sonia, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Oh, thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Now, you know, um, I, I always are in, I'm intri- intrigued by this twilight zone, and, and maybe you can, uh, Richard, uh, sort of fill me in on why it got that name, the twilight zone, and what exactly is the range uh you know, between the 200-foot um, depth, can you go? Yeah, well, so if you look at the history of undersea exploration, we've had different kinds of technologies to get access to different depths. And in modern history, uh, you know, two of the main technologies that scientists use are scuba diving and submarines. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that conventional scuba gear, it starts to get uh, pretty dangerous to dive at much below about 130 feet. You know, very intrepid divers will take it down maybe to 200 feet or so. But, but uh, generally, scuba divers over the last 50 years or so have only really been able to explore the upper 100 to 150 feet of water. Now, submarines uh, can go shallow, but they can also go deep, and they're very expensive. And so if you're going to spend all that money on a submarine, thousands and thousands of dollars for one dive, uh, you don't want to go a few hundred feet deep. You want to go thousands of feet deep. And so what happens is the submarines always end up going much, much deeper. So you end up with this zone that's deeper than scuba divers and shallower than where submarines go that's been pretty much unexplored this whole time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, So in that unexplored region, uh, is that the niche that you 
are focusing all of your research on? That's my primary interest, yeah. I mean, what's exciting to me about it is that it is a mystery. It's unexplored. And and the name Twilight Zone actually fits really well for two reasons. One, it represents the transition between these brightly lit shallow coral reefs where sunlight penetrates Mm -hmm. and the perpetually dark depths where there's no sunlight. And so even in midday tropical sun, it sort of feels like twilight when you're down at those depths. It sort of feels like just before sunset is how bright it is down there. So, you know, just visually, it looks like a twilight zone, but also it's mysterious because we know so little about it. Mm -hmm. Um, It kind of has that, uh, you know, twilight zone feel to it. Now, Richard, I definitely want to get a little bit into sort of your history and some, I mean, a a great TED talk about um, some of the things that you've experienced. But Sonia, um, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly curious about your uh, your uh, gateway into this research area, the Twilight Zone, whether at, uh, at through Bishop Museum or at uh, the Department of Biology at the University of Hawaii, um, what is your specific passion? What was it that drove you to focus in this uh, this Twilight Zone? Right. Well, it's kind of cut a long story short. Um, uh, I was very lucky. My parents started diving when I was three, so I've always dived. And, um, and my dad's uh, very much an intrepid depth diver and um, a wreck hunter and so that's Mm. how I was brought up and with big diving boats and so on so I always wanted to uh, marry diving science with uh, scientific research and so um, this is this is how this has come about so when I first came to Hawaii just um, just as a visiting researcher um, when I was doing my PhD um, I came here for uh, three weeks and I still haven't really left. Hmm. And um, back in 2009, and my father said, oh, catch up with Richard Pyle. So I did. And, um, and I, you know, I was very, you know, basically, there we are. Um, I've always, I studied the, the sea fan corals, uh, commonly known as Gorgonians, um, in the UK, which are cited listed there. And, uh, and I, I'm really fascinated in, in evolutionary changes over depth. Mm-hmm. And so I've been on like deep sea research trips with the submarines and, you know, drop cameras and so on, but also, you know, shallow waters around the Indo-Pacific as well as temperate and Mediterranean regions. And, and of course, there's that wonderful bit in the middle, um, the twilight zone, which is incidentally our favorite time of the day. <laughs> it's... Um, where, for me, for all sorts of reasons, not just the the uh, diving science, but also the actual the evolutionary biology that seems to be answering, as far as I'm concerned, and what I'm seeing so far, um, answering a lot of phylogenetic questions. You know, why have these corals evolved to be in such a way? So, uh, for those that are interested, structure, function, relationships. You know, this is why they look this way. And this is why they've changed in the shallows. Mm -hmm. And this is why they are in the deep. Because, of course, in the deep, deep ocean, you've got a very benign environment. And then we we have this common interest of uh, of, um, geological change. So how the climate change has affected the animals that live on the reefs. And so the twilight zone really comes into its own there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you want to take a bit further on that. Well, yeah. So um, th- what she was getting at is that um, uh, over over the history of Earth, you get these sea level change cycles that are tied to glaciation events, you know, ice ages. And at times, the sea level has been, you know, 300 feet, maybe even 400 feet lower than it is right now. Right now in history, in Earth's history, we're at a high sea level stand. And so we've noticed that these changing sea levels throughout the Indo-Pacific, the tropical Indo-Pacific, have left their scars on coral reefs down deep. But they've also left 
left their scars on the distribution of different species around the Pacific. And we were sort of investigating how the history of these sea level changes are are impacting the distribution of corals and fishes around the Pacific. And we've got some new ideas about that, which we're in the process of testing. And as Sonia mentioned, you know, this fauna that happens to live at this twilight zone depth range, Mm -hmm. we think has the key to the answers that everybody's missed so far because they haven't really been exploring this depth so much. Hmm. Yeah, this is is fascinating. I want to... uh, well, I actually bring our caller in, but uh, Richard Powell and Sonia Rowley are both from the Bishop Museum. They're exploring this area called the Twilight Zone. And if you have any comments or questions or are interested in coral research in this depth below 200 feet, you can give us a call. The number is 941-3689 on Oahu or from the neighbor islands or even from the mainland. You can call us at one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. We want to welcome John from Berkeley to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hey, aloha, guys. Aloha. Um, this is one of your best shows ever. This is, this is why people tune in from all over the world to listen to you. Um, well, and I you. also want to plug that Aaron Schwartz movie. He was a great guy and went to UC Berkeley right over here. Ah, so you yes. guys should totally check that out. So great show. Thank you. I love the Mich- the Bishop Museum, you guys. So thank you for that. Um, but so this is Bite Mark. So let me ask you some geeky questions about machine intelligence and marine biology in this layer of the ocean. And I'll take my questions off the air or the answers off the air. So Richard, I've seen your TED Talk and I also saw Edith Witter's TED Talk. And I know that you guys are using image processing and image recognition to count bioluminescent am- animals and stuff like that. I'd love to hear more about that. And I'm also just curious about what other kind of big data initiatives are happening in oceanography that might be giving us new insights about this particular layer of the ocean. And then finally, you know, I donate to Monterey Bay Aquarium over here, and they love this layer, by the way. Um, And I donate to the Pacific Whale Foundation. But what are some other good uh, uh, causes that, um, that represent this layer of the ocean that people could donate to? To, um, to advance this research and keep it alive. So mahalo, guys. I'll come see you soon, I promise. Okay, wow. John, thank you for calling. A great series of questions from Berkeley over there. So. Yeah, great questions. Thanks for calling. So let me see if I can address a few of them. So Edith Witter's studies an area that um, is generally deeper than we go. I, I don't know a lot about bioluminescence. I don't know if, if, if Sonia does or not, but the technology she uses is for very, very deep oceans where bioluminescence is kind of the only light that's mm-hmm, down there. Mm-hmm. Um, he also asked about um, um, other big initiatives, big data initiatives. And the one that comes immediately to mind is the one where I first met Edith Witter, which is through the Schmidt Ocean Institute. Um, they they have a base here. Their, their ship, the Falcor, has come through here. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and they are doing amazing sort of high-tech uh, uh, bathymetry, scanning the, the bottom of the ocean. And I was involved with them early on in their development, and so was uh, Edith. And um, so I would say they're one of the big data ocean, you know, forward thinking. It's, it's Schmidt as an Eric Schmidt of mm-hmm. Google. So, mm-hmm. so obviously data is at the center of their sort of interest in gathering and interest. Um, I don't know if you have much more to say on the bioluminescence side. Um, well, actually, the the interesting thing is um, it was first discovered in a coral, bamboo coral, here in Hawaii. And by uh, Dr. Katie Music, who was also on a, a sub-dive as part of HURL. Off the top of my head. Actually, no, it wasn't HURL. Anyway, it was a, it was a sub-dive, um, the star sub, with um, um, Dr. Earl, Sylvia Earl. And uh, and they went down and uh, found uh, something called Lepidisis olapa, and it was only noticed 
by simply just stimulating the actual, you know, knocking the coral, they noticed that it was it was bioluminescing. So that was when it was first ever uh, discovered back in 1979. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm curious, you know, in terms of, uh, oh, and we, the third question was about, uh, you know, Monterey Bay, where can oh, yeah. someone so support this work? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So MBARI, which is the Monterey Bay Research Institute, mm-hmm. has done a lot of work using sort of remote uh, vehicles to go down into the twilight zone depths. What they focus on is the midwater communities, the planktonic communities where you get sea jellies and, and, and other sorts of things like that, which are, you know, very common. They also work on benthic work, too. Um, and, and so they're a very great cause. And then, of course, Bishop Museum, we have a pretty strong program in this. The, the technical term for the Twilight Zone is mesophotic coral ecosystems. Okay, uh, I like is, the Twilight Zone. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I have a slide when I give presentations that talks about the evolution of what we call this zone. And, you know, it starts at Twilight Zone, you know, very exciting and mm-hmm, sexy, mm-hmm. and, and then it ends up with mesophotic photocoral ecosystems, which our federal government came up with. Um, but anyway, uh, okay. so there, there are several groups that, that work on it in Australia and in Florida, and we at Bishop Museum are, are among leaders. And then we have a, a nonprofit organization called the Association for Marine Exploration, AME. Uh, MarineExploration.org, where we basically serve as sort of a volunteer core of trained scientists, deep divers, to be able to go and do this kind of research in places in a more nimble way than than large institutions are capable of doing it. So that that sort of what jumps to my mind. Anything else, Sonia? No, I think you've got it covered. Now, you know what's interesting about uh, John's question, and you know, with uh, with bioluminescence, and actually perhaps even going deeper below the the depths that that you're you're talking about. Uh, you're going into this 200 foot and below depth with technology like a rebreather, which allows you to physically, without a submarine, uh, you know, any kind of external um, uh, sub, to go into an a re- into a region and actually look at species, coral, fish, whatever in in that area. Uh, and and when you start to talk about submarines and and um, like the Schmidt Ocean, Ocean Institute folks, and they're doing you know sort of these surveys of the the, um, the ocean floor. I mean, you're talking about some high tech stuff with big equipment and multi million dollar subs, but you're just going down there pretty much on your own, right? I mean, your fins, <laughs> your mask, yeah. your rebreather, and I'm and actually uh, wi- widely known as not even wearing a wetsuit. So you'll see pictures of me down there just wearing a button-up collar shirt uh, down at those depths. So yeah, yeah, so exposed to the elements, so to speak. So I guess the way to 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 sort of uh, summarize that is that all of these top technologies are complementary in some way. Mm-hmm. They all have strengths and they all have weaknesses. So the submersibles, their great strengths are that you can spend hours at tremendous depths and you can, and you know, there's no time constraints. Your body's not exposed to any water or, you know, you know lo- no risk of drowning. It's, it's not cold, etc. Um, the downside of the submarine, besides the high cost, is also that you, you the researcher, are insulated from the environment. You can't mm-hmm. get very close mm-hmm. to it. You can't take mm-hmm. a submarine into a cave because it, it got stuck. Who would come rescue you, right? And so a submarine has to be very cautious about how it approaches a reef. And, and if you're trying to s- study the very cryptic small organisms that live inside of reefs, then, you know, a submarine is kind of limiting. You're looking through a porthole or even sometimes you have an acrylic sphere, but you still can't quite see what's going on down deep. So the advantage of what Sonia and I do with the rebreathers is that we were actually right in there in the environment. And we as scientists can be right on top of that habitat, look inside the caves, look inside the holes, look under the ledges much more carefully. And we see so much more than, um, you know, ROVs or submarines ever see. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
-hmm. The downside, of course, is how much time we can Mm -hmm. spend down there. So when we go down there and expose our bodies to those pressures, the longer we stay down there, the longer it takes us for us to slowly ascend back to the surface for decompression. So if we spend, say, half an hour at 300 feet, we're looking at about two to three, maybe four hours of decompression to work our way slowly back up to the surface. So we only get these short glimpses at depths when a submarine could spend hours down there. So when, and I, I, that the challenge, I guess, is, is, is it might be the layman's term was the bends where uh, you you could you could be injured or you could die from surfacing too quickly. And you know, Sonia, I love your story about how it was in your family. It's almost in your blood diving for wrecks and being out there in the element, and that's certainly exciting. But uh, maybe in your time, has the te- has technology advanced in any way so that's less of a threat? I mean, my only knowledge of it is there was a hyperbaric chamber on in a in a window on Merchant Street, and someone had to explain to me what that was. It was to help treat people who were suffering from the bends from surfacing too quickly. But I mean. Have there been advancements maybe in the last 20 years? Um, Yes, of course. I mean, at the end of the day, you can't really um, change too much what happens with the body. I mean, you know, when we're down at that pressure, things are going to be things are going to change. It's going to be different. Um, But the technology has definitely refined in terms of the gases that we use Hmm. and the refinement of of what we breathe. And so, um, I mean, my father was an engineer and so he was a very adventurous one and was always looking for the next, you know, first of all, you know, open circuit scuba, then oh, we want to go a bit deeper, you know, open circuit trimix and then started doing um, semi-closed rebreathers and then four rebreathers and and of course the rebreathers that we now use um, that you know Richard's been like very involved in actually bringing to the fore in terms of invention um, are like electronically controlled rebreathers so we're actually refining the the balance of the gases so we can stay down and uh, you know, for the the amount of time that we need to stay down, well, want to stay, <laughs> need and want, <laughs> can mm-hmm. stay down, and um, and and ascend with the decomp, you know, with the re- you know the decompression and so on. Um, we've got it. We're getting it to the point where it's really fine tuned, mm-hmm. and and where there's specific algorithms to actually make that happen. So where it was in the past, a lot more sort, you know, flying by the seat of your pants, and possibly maybe you know doing a little bit of maths and stuff like that. Here it's much more. You know, we've got backup across backup. We've got you know a huge amount of sort of data based algorithms i mean at the end of the day different people are different people so they do respond in different ways on a physiological level right and it's dynamic it sounds like whereas before you might have a tank with a specific mix but that mix has to suit you at all depths yeah now you can mess with the mix depending on the depth that you're at i want to sort of get a little primer on what exactly is the let's say the thought process or the the actual gas mixture as you start to want to delve into that depth and and of course you've seen the whole history of the rebreather and how it, I saw your TED Talk, which was about 10 years ago, and, and there was one sort of technology at that point. But mm-hmm. I, I'd like you to give us a little bit of an explanation of what actually prompted the need for a rebreather. Okay, well, good. I'll try to encapsulate. I mean, that's a two-hour conversation right there, <laughs> but I'll try to bring it down into a short, abstract form. So Basically, we're all breathing air right now, Mm -hmm. and I assume a lot of your listeners will know that air is about 80% nitrogen and about 20% oxygen. So our bodies evolved to consume about 20% oxygen. That's how our hemoglobin delivers the oxygen to our cells. We need the oxygen to survive. Turns out we don't really use the nitrogen very much. The nitrogen just sort of comes and goes as we breathe it. Now, as we go 
underwater and descend under depth. The deeper you go, the greater the pressure. The weight of the water above you between you and the surface causes pressure. So every 33 feet of depth you descend increases the pressure by one atmosphere. We're all at one atmosphere right now. If you go to 33 feet, that's two atmospheres, 66 feet, three atmospheres, Mm -hmm. and so on, the deeper Mm -hmm. you go. And as you go deeper, the effect of that pressure is that it increases the concentration of the gas inside your lungs as you breathe it. So at 33 feet, you have twice as many oxygen molecules and twice as many nitrogen molecules in your body. And that's fine until you get down to a depth of about 100 to 150 feet. It depends on the person. The first effect that kicks in is the nitrogen. So as you have very high concentrations of nitrogen, four or five times what we're breathing right now, it has the effect of alcohol inebriation. It's Mm -hmm. called nitrogen narcosis. So it it really does feel very much like drinking alcohol. In fact, there's something called Martini's Law, which says for every 50 feet of depth you descend is like drinking one martini. Most people can go to 50 feet and they're, you know, one martini, they're okay. But as they go deeper and deeper, 300 feet, six, seven martinis, you mm-hmm. have a hard time staying conscious. So the first thing you have to deal with is the nitrogen. And it turns out uh, over many years of experimentation by commercial divers and military divers that helium works out to be a really good gas. It does not cause the narcosis that the nitrogen does. And you get a bonus by the fact that it's a very tiny gas molecule because as you go deeper and the gas gets denser and denser, it actually becomes mechanically difficult to breathe thick gases. But helium being a small molecule makes it much easier Mm -hmm. to breathe. So the first part of the gas breathing equation is helium. The second part is oxygen. Now, we all know we need oxygen to survive. That's what we use to metabolize. But it turns out if you breathe too much oxygen, you can die um, underwater. So too much oxygen, if you breathe pure oxygen below a depth of about 20 feet, it becomes toxic. And what it can cause you to do is have a seizure, a convulsion. And then usually when that happens to someone underwater, they drown. So oxygen has to be maintained at the right level. Too little oxygen, you pass out and die. Too much oxygen, you run to have risk of a seizure. So even with the introduction of helium to solve this nitrogen narcosis problem, you still have to monitor the oxygen. Mm -hmm. Now, there's one other aspect of physics about this increasing pressure as you go deeper. On scuba, when you take a breath, you take it out of a compressed tank, and then you exhale it as bubbles. You always see scuba divers Mm -hmm. with bubbles. Well, as you go deeper, each exhaled breath wastes more and more gas. So at 300 feet, every breath you take consumes 10 times as much gas as a breath at the surface. So a scuba tank that will last an hour at the surface will only last six minutes at 300 feet. So when you're breathing what Sonia referred to as open circuit, that mm-hmm. is you take a breath from a tank and exhale it as bubbles, you go through gas mixtures very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. So you'll see divers, so-called technical divers, wearing two or three or four scuba tanks on them just to have physically enough gas. That's where rebreathers come in. It's called the rebreather because instead of exhaling bubbles, you recirculate the same breath round and round and round. The same helium molecules are coming into your lungs, back out of your lungs, through a breathing loop into the backpack behind you, and back to your body. Mm -hmm. And so what your body is doing is removing the oxygen and then using it for metabolizing, and then you exhale carbon dioxide. The rebreather's job, its only job, is to get rid of that carbon dioxide and replace the oxygen and deliver a safe breath to you to breathe again. So you're consuming a tiny bit of oxygen, producing a tiny bit of carbon dioxide. The rebreather's job is to get rid of that carbon dioxide, replace the oxygen. And the amazing aspect of that is that a tiny little scuba tank will last us hours, no matter how deep we go, because we're not wasting any gas. So Hmm. it's a much more efficient way to use rebreathers to use this mixed gases down deep. 
Wow, that is <laughs> that is fascinating. That, and that's the first time I've ever had to explain that to anyone. You, I'm sure you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I love that. I love it because uh, you know I think uh, that kind of helps me understand. Uh, now you know. Well, actually, we want to probably go to a break, but I want to ask you a little bit more about this rebreather because I have another couple questions in my my head that's kind of rattling around. Hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Richard Pyle and Sonia Rowley about diving into the twilight zone. And how are all the findings then cataloged into a system and how can you get interesting insights out of it? Of course, we'd like to hear from you as well. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. You are listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Many local businesses and organizations support Hawaii Public Radio. Through corporate sponsorships, they provide us with 25% of our operating budget. It's a way to reach HPR's audience with your message and at the same time support the station. And we'd love to provide you with on-air recognition for your support. To learn more, go to the HPR website, hawaiipublicradio.org, and click on support. The HPR website. It's just a click away. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Anthony Lawler, author of The Temple in the House. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about finding the sacred in everyday architecture. Sunday morning at 11. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Richard Pyle and Sonia Rowley about scientific databases and cataloging the deep. And, of course, before we get to that, I just have a couple of questions I want to ask uh, Richard about the rebreather. And, of course, you can call us and ask those questions as well, 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And we were talking about the rebreather and actually, you know, getting the sort of the right gas mixture and and using helium as a way to sort of replace the um, the nitrogen. My question is, when you are planning to go to depths of deeper than 150 feet, um, when you go in, even if you're in the zone between, you know, the sea, um, the surface, and then you know down to 150 feet, are you still breathing the helium? And it doesn't make a difference whether you're breathing helium or nitrogen in that in that range. So your rebreather is already set for helium. Well, so it depends on what kind of dive we're doing. If we're not going very deep at all, at all, we we usually use air mm-hmm. as our as mixed with with the nitrogen. It's not not a problem at all. If we are planning to go deep, in the old days when we first started doing this, we used to use what we call travel mix, which is you breathe your nitrogen mixture on the way down, and then when you get to whatever depth, you know, 150 feet, you switch over to the helium mm-hmm. mixture. But mm-hmm. we found it's just so much simpler to leave the surface on the helium mixture and plunge straight. Down because mm-hmm. we generally go straight down. There's no reason to switch the gas on the way. So if we're on our way to greater depths, we start at the surface with the helium mix. Now, at that uh, at the depth that you are currently um, um, exploring, and even with the rebreather, you still have to take the appropriate amount of time coming back up, right? Yes. So um, you still have to decompress with the rebreather, but you have a few things working to your advantage. Um, one of them is the helium molecules, a little hard to explain, but essentially friendly to your body uh, for various reasons. And there's still some uncertainty about all the physics and physiology behind that. But the other thing that makes it different is a rebreather is changing the oxygen concentration to be optimal for whatever depth you're at. Um, so a scuba tank, you've got one gas mixture 
mixture, and that's the gas mixture you're breathing from no matter where mm-hmm, you go. And mm-hmm. if you want different gas mixtures, you have to take three, four, five scuba tanks with you. But the rebreather allows that mix to be dynamic. So it adds more oxygen as you get shallow and removes oxygen as you go deep. And the consequence of that is that oxygen turns out to be very good for decompression. So as we get shallower and shallower, it's always increasing the oxygen to make it faster and faster decompression. So just to give you just sort of a rough comparison, if I did a regular air scuba dive for, say, two hours at 100 feet, it would take me, I think, four and a half hours, oh, excuse me, seven and a half hours to get back to the surface, uh, depending on which algorithm you use for decompression. Mm -hmm. But a rebreather would take you something like 90 minutes. So um, there are advantages of using this dynamic gas mixture to get out of the water quicker. We Mm -hmm. still have to decompress, but not as long as we otherwise would. So what is the bottom limit of your uh, the depth that you can actually go to with a rebreather? Well, uh, the equipment that we use, it's uh, built by Poseidon. Uh, we, I've been uh, working to help develop it for a bunch of years now. Um, it is structurally good to 200 meters, but they won't rate it to go that deep. Right now, they rate it to go to 100 meters, which is 330 feet or so. Mm-hmm. We're, uh, we've been doing test dives. Sonia actually go, uses it deeper than I do. She goes down to about 500 feet with it, <laughs> more than I have. But uh, That's the um, intrepid part, right? <laughs> yeah. Me never, no. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, so so um, so that at 500 feet, several things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. One of them is the coral reef ends, and both Sonia and I are coral reef biologists. Okay. Although Sonia is interested, her corals keep going down to thousands of feet. So it's, it, it, I, I sometimes wonder how deep she's willing to go. On <laughs> I think she's trying to figure that out too. <laughs> uh, um, but um, for me, the coral reef fishes end at about 500 feet. Uh, mm. Second thing is that. Um, the ratio of time you can spend on the bottom to the time decompressing gets a little out of control mm-hmm. beyond that. In other mm-hmm. words, 10 minutes at that depth, you're already looking at three hours of decompression. Wow. Right, so right. it gets a little bit crazy. And also managing bailout. You know, we have to have emergency gas supplies in case the rebreather fails. The deeper you go, it gets exponentially more complicated to make sure you have a second breathing pathway back right. to the surface. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. 500 feet seems to be about the magic spot, both for the biology and the diver physiology and the logistics of doing Mm-hmm. Well, Richard, I got to say, I mean, your explanation for the break is the first time I've been able to even understand. I don't know how many Wikipedia articles I've read. Bishop Museum has a website, I mean, a web page, and now I can really get wrap my brain around it. And it is, I think, it helps that you help to develop some of these technologies. But Sonia, we talked about the coral reefs and how a lot of people focus at the surface and a lot of people focus maybe at the deep. But what you're trying to see is are there insights in the middle that can help with a broader picture, a broader understanding. Here on Bite Marks Cafe, we've talked a lot about some of the research happening around Hawaii at the surface, for example, coral bleaching events and and the health of the coral reefs. Just as an example, um, what are you seeing at the twilight zone, at this middle depth, that might help us better understand or even better mitigate things like coral bleaching? Right. Well, there's there's quite a few things, really. I mean, essentially, one of the... um, uh, hypotheses that are going round is uh, that of refugia, and that's um, actually becoming quite a, a wide um, word. Um, and what that basically postulates is that you've got deeper corals, for example, your hard corals, that um, that, are, that are surviving very nicely in the twilight zone. And as the shallower waters are not faring so well because of climate change and sedimentation and all the delights that we do to the ocean... Um, uh, they will then become seeded by the the twilight zone. 
Mm. However, mm. we have to take into consideration the actual physiology of the of the corals that are able to survive in the twilight zone. They have actually survived there for for you know for good reason. And so the ones that are zooxanthellate, and what I mean by that, those that have the associate um, algae, the single celled um, symbiodinium, the algae, or zooxanth- you know the zooxanthellae, which uh, people talk about, um, they often have a tendency to be specific to those depths. They have a physiological specificity. Mm. Um, but there's variation in that too and that variation in itself to me and to many other biologists show that with climate change over the over the over the millennia which Richard was mentioning earlier in those 100,000 year cycles they've evolved to be quite plastic and so they can actually sustain variation so that's mm. one of the things that the twilight um, people are very, very sort of passionate about. You know, ha- can the, the the corals and the fish reseed the damage right, that we right. have done? And um, and of course, there's natural damage as well. We don't have to sort of wear that big burden of guilt. <laughs> um, but we, we but human you know humans have exacerbated the situation. But also, what I see um, with the seafan corals, which what I uh, you know there's that seeding as well. But not all of them are zooxanthellate. In fact, what happens is as you go deeper, the diversity of of uh, Gorgonian corals, it just increases in immensely. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely unbelievable. And so every time I go on a dive, just like um, Rich with the fishes, you know, he finds new f- species of fishes. I find a tremendous amount of new species of mm. corals. I mean, it's just mind blowing. It's a guarantee. It's it's very very good. Amazing. You yeah. know, in the in the few minutes that we have left, I want to uh, bring on Carl, who's uh, calling from Kauai. Welcome to the show. Hey, how are you doing? Good, good. Yeah, hey, I had a quick question. Um, in addition to the rebreather technology, what are some other things that either the two researchers are, are, are hoping for or are working on to augment their research down that far? Um, maybe even like a mapping systems down that far, or tagging systems, or, or, or um, I don't know, uh, LED lights that maybe are better wavelengths work at that depth. Is, is there anything else that they're working on? It's pretty exciting. Okay, Excellent Carl. question. Yeah, great question. Uh, what other tech Richard? toys are you developing? Richard? Well, yeah, actually, it's <laughs> glad you brought that up, Carl. Um, so uh, the rebreather development has been uh, basically led by a guy named Dr. Bill Stone. And if you you know if you want to look at a good TED Talk, check out Bill Stone's TED Talk. It'll blow your mind away at many levels. Um, but anyway, he's an engineering genius. And his interest now is building autonomous robots, robots that can guide themselves. And he's been funded by NASA to build prototypes that are eventually going to go to um, uh, moons of uh, Jupiter to go search for life potentially under the icy mm-hmm. sheets. And, and so he's got a lot of autonomous robot technology. Well, Bill, Sonia, and I and several others recently submitted a proposal to the National Science Foundation to essentially use this autonomous robot technology to build the ultimate deep diving assistant, so the perfect dive buddy mm-hmm. who, um, who, who, that would carry our bailout equipment, that would have cameras and laser-guided, um, you know, 3D imaging of the reef and and all of this sort of technology that we wouldn't have to carry as divers. It would be sort of our caddy or our assistant, hmm. and also expendable. I mean, one of the one of the hazards of diving with two people is if one of them gets into trouble, the other has to risk their life to save them. If a robot gets into trouble, well, you can leave it on the bottom. And, and sorry, and robot. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's probably one of the more exciting ones um, that I can think of. 
I think that covers it, really. Mm. I mean, looking at the time. Well, you know, and uh, I know we probably don't have too much time, but I, I thought maybe in the last, since you did a great job of exp- you know explaining uh, you know the whole uh, rebreather technology, can you explain some of the cataloging that you might be involved in in maybe a minute or less? Very briefly, <laughs> yeah. So what I actually mostly do at, at Bishop Museum is create databases to manage our specimen data. Mm. And one of the things we've been really interested in, especially our most recent expedition, is a workflow of data capture where we try to digitize the information as soon as we collect the specimen mm-hmm. rather than take field notes and then capture them later. But right. I'm involved in a whole world of data standardization and making the data of what we collect easily accessible and open access and, uh, and fitting into standards. And, and that would be a whole other conversation perhaps for another day. But uh, yeah, that's a whole other technology world that fits in really well with with the world. Well, it sounds like the world that we live in, like uh, open access, certainly. Mm -hmm. So would developers at other universities be able to plug into your database or Absolutely, absolutely. We're developing all kinds of APIs for internationally accessible databases. We're working with groups around the world to make these better and more accessible and standardized. So uh, you you said the magic word API. And so from a a, uh, zoologist standpoint, I mean, you sort of cross the... The, the fence there and and play with the sort of the computer programming side of things? I wear many different hats. Ah. So I actually program databases. I design rebreathers. I studied species of fish. And, and so many, many different hats. And yes, and that's one, one component of all of it. So, Sonia, for the data you're collecting, Richard's helping you uh, collect it en masse and quickly and process it quickly? Um. Yes, I guess so. Um, I guess over the years I've I've sort of had my own way. I'm I see, the I way see. I do it because. Um, but uh, what happens is then I can put my data into into their database structure system, and um, and so it can be disseminated out to everyone so they can see it. It sounds like there's a vibrant community of researchers just like you collecting data everywhere. Yes, and it really needs to be. Uh, I, I believe it needs to be open access. You know, so uh, we. How can people know? what's out there and what's down there. You know, we need to disseminate this information and then people can learn and model that data. So I'm very much in, uh, interested in the statistical side of things. I want to be able to get that data and see statistical patterns, put them into GIS, see mm-hmm. where things are, mm-hmm. where they may be, predictive modeling, things like that. Great. Well, where can people find out more information about what you guys are doing? This is fascinating. <laughs> well, we write active blogs. That's one of the things we do do um, on the Bishop Museum website. Mm-hmm. You'll see um, our last trip to uh, Ponape and also Poseidon, the Poseidon website as well. You'll find out a lot of what we do there and definitely more of a focus on the, the rebreather technology as well. Mm-hmm. And then uh, as far as the uh, open access API that we can access for all this great cataloging? <laughs> Well, a lot of it's still under development, but the most publicly visible thing we're developing is called something called Zoobank, Z-O-O-B-A-N-K dot org, which is uh, okay. the online registry of animal names, new new kinds of animal names. I can't doing. wait Ooh, to play with yeah, that. Yeah, great <laughs> stuff. Richard Powell is the database coordinator at the Bishop Museum, and Sonia Rowley is a research affiliate over at the Bishop Museum as well, and we want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll learn about the Hawaii Society for Technology in Education. And if you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. Of course, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong and our executive producer is Beth Ann Koslovit. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called The National and a song called Graceless. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. You can imagine how I